Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, April 5th, we're studying Luke chapter 20, verse 41 through chapter 21, verse 4. Having answered all his challengers and teaching the truth in the face of their lies, Jesus now challenges his enemies concerning what the scriptures say about him and about their own hypocrisy. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Joel Heckman. Pastor Heckman serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. Pastor Heckman, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you, Tim. Good to be here. Let's talk a little context. We're in the end of chapter 20, moving into chapter 21. What should we know about this part of our Lord's ministry going into the text for today? Well, um, we are getting into what we call the passion narrative in Luke's gospel. And you kind of have to backtrack to about the middle middle of chapter 19 to find where that starts. 19, verse 28, at that triumphal entry, he's coming in to Jerusalem. Jesus has come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, turned his face toward Jerusalem. And a lot of the texts leading up to today have quite a bit in common, and especially the fact that Jesus is um, having open conflict with the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. There's crowds that can hear the conversations. He's teaching openly against, as you kind of pointed out at the start, the lies of the religious leaders who are rejecting the basic notion that Jesus is who he says he is, the, the Son of God, the Lord of the universe. So you have different incidents, you know, entering on Palm Sunday, the religious leaders don't like the fact that Jesus is being praised as the son of David, Hosanna. They tell him to, you know, basically can it. (laughs) And Jesus says, nope, uh, I'm not only going to let them keep saying that, I'm accepting their praise as though I am God, uh, because he is. They don't like that. Then he clears the temple in, in chapter 19, verse 45, and then, they try to trap him with questions at the start of chapter 20, and he asks them a question that they refuse to answer, which is exposure of their hypocrisy. Um, and then he has this uh, parable of the wicked tenants, uh, which I believe is that our gospel text for this weekend. Yeah, it's um, at least as we're recording. Yeah, it, yeah it's the yeah. gospel text that you sure. would have just Last heard Sunday, if you're listening right. to this live. That's right. <laughs> yeah, so that's a, that, that's a big parable against the religious leaders. Jesus is essentially saying, you guys are the reason I'm going to be killed, um, calling them out, indicting them for murdering him. Uh, and, and they don't like that, of course, to be called murderers is not very flattering at all. And then um, they have in just for a text today, um, we hear them asking about uh, taxes and marriage. Those two famous passages give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God? What is God's? And uh, they thought they could get him in trouble with the government here. You know, maybe he'll say something that goes against Caesar, but Jesus answers wisely. And then they ask him about 
marriage and he responds uh with an excellent message about the resurrection because they didn't believe in the resurrection so a lot of a lot of authority that jesus is putting forth without compromise and then um we get to 20 verse 41 or first verse and they finally you see the questions on the side of the religious leaders have sort of died down but jesus isn't done he goes kind of counterattacks, so to speak and asks them some very difficult questions, uh, which we'll get to. And then after this, it really, it's kind of the the last little teaching Jesus takes the time to give these big groups of people before he enters into, um, you know, Monday, Thursday, instituting the Passover, Good Friday, resurrection, all that. That's right around the corner. So it's really, I find it really striking and, and uh, quite telling about Jesus that, these days leading up to his death, his betrayal, uh, he's not keeping to himself. He's not isolating himself to, you know, you might understand if he went off somewhere and wanted to pray this whole time or just needed some time to himself. He's taking time to teach, to respond to critics, to really encourage the people, but also warn them, of course. He's talking about future events in the end of chapter 21, like, you know, kind of an air of repent. These things are going to happen. Uh, keep your eyes fixed on me. Your redemption draws near. That's in chapter 21. So uh, maybe the big theme of the context is even in the opposition to Jesus, um, he's still demonstrating his lordship and still focusing on the people who both reject him and are following him. And it shows the compassion and the um, tenacity of our Lord mm. to do all this the week he's going to die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. The the theme of his lordship, or as we've said in previous shows, his authority definitely comes through really strongly in this text. And it, he's going to make it quite plain in this text that the authority mm-hmm. that he has is authority as God himself. I mean, that, that's been there all along, but it becomes very, very plain, and he connects it here in a very important way to Psalm 110. So really important text in the midst of Holy Week, as Jesus now, having faced all these questions from his enemies, now puts the question to them, as you said, in an effort to teach and also then to call them to repentance. So we are picking up the text in Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 41. But he, Jesus, said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And in in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. That's our text for today. That was Luke 20, verse 41 through chapter 21, verse 4. So, Pastor Heckman, take us into Jesus' question to the the scribes. He said to them, how can they say 
that the Christ is David's son. Just give us the the setup. How are we to understand what Jesus is doing here? Yeah, so as you mentioned, he's referencing Psalm 110, verse 1, and going with that theme of lordship, this is um, Jesus going to the Old Testament to demonstrate his fulfillment of messianic language in the Old Testament prophecies. So honestly, the first time I read this, and, and every time since, I haven't really stopped to figure, I, I, I kind of put this in my notes, the pronouns can be really tricky if you don't follow along because the reference to these pronouns you know who are they referring to in the real world i I just had to go back and and reread it a handful of times see okay who is jesus talking about um so i kind of um rewrote so to speak uh verses 41 through 44 to make it a little easier for myself to understand and, and hopefully it'll it'll clear things up a little bit for our listeners um so here's all those pronouns if we reread chapter 20, verses 41 through 44 again. Uh, But Jesus said to the scribes, how can scribes say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, and again, this is Psalm 110, the Father, God the Father said to God the Son, Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then verse 44, David thus calls Jesus Lord or the Son of God Lord, so how is Jesus David's son? Um, and this is a chance to take a look at a few different things Jesus is doing with this reference. Uh, all the way back in chapter 5, the challenges have been coming left and right to Jesus' authority. Uh, chapter 5, he heals the paralytic man and then forgives his sins. Um, and the religious leaders say, wait a minute, you're not God. You can't do that. And so he goes, says, well, uh, look what I'm going to do. I'm going to heal a paralyzed man. Um, and that c- cements my authority to forgive sins because these are things that only God can do. And here, look at it. Look at me. I'm doing them. Um, and then here, of course, you know, if we if we take Jesus public ministry to be what, three years or so, um, this is likely at least a couple years after that initial challenge with the paralytics, it's chapter 20. And they still, after all they've seen, and all they've heard, they they don't acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And so then Jesus, you know, takes it a step further and says, I'm not just going to show you with my actions. I'm going to show you with the scriptures that I am the Lord of the universe, the Messiah. Um, and so so here's what he's doing. He's taking the psalm and saying, David was talking about me. Uh, I'm the one that, you know, hundreds of years earlier when David wrote this psalm, he was looking ahead to the Messiah, um, and we'll get to that footstool language in just a minute, you know, talk about what does he mean by that, but um, just a few a few points to, to make with this then. Uh, first, Jesus is demonstrating from the scriptures, the Old Testament at that time, that he is the one about whom David speaks, the fulfillment of those messianic prophecies, and and really, I like to say this when, if anyone says, who needs the Old Testament, I like to say, well, Jesus did. <laughs> And that's what he's doing here. He's saying, if you want any clue as to who I am, uh, you know, where I come from, why you need me, look at the Old Testament. Uh, I'm, the Old Testament is about Jesus. And he's making that point very strongly here. Uh, number two, Jesus is making a claim that he's both son of God and son of man, fully divine, fully human, because he's saying, how else could I be both descended from David, which would make him fully man, 
but also legitimately command the worship of King David, who, which would point to the fact that he's divine. Uh, so there's there's Christology going on here saying who Jesus is, true God, true man. And the this is something the religious leaders still just cannot wrap their minds around, like Jesus coming in the flesh, Jesus becoming incarnate, you know, the Son of God would do that. No way. He's saying that's that's what you see. That's what you need to confess. That's what I'm showing you. Um, and then the final thing I think he's that's going on here, uh, I mean, he could have referenced any number of Old Testament passages, uh, but he chooses this one. And I think one of the big reasons he does is he talks about David, one of the great kings of the Old Testament. Uh, no, not even David is above worshiping Jesus Christ. Um, he is human descendant of David, but at the same time, David's Lord. And the scribes are forced to hold this you know, intention. How can these two things be true at the same time? Um, they refuse to do that, but Jesus is making it clear, like, no one, no one other than God has the authority that I have, but I'm still, you know, flesh and blood and bone and all this, you know, I have fingernails and skin and all that. I'm clearly human. And so this is, again, where we see this transcendent theme in this text kind of developing. Um, that's really, I mean, throughout the whole book, this is, this is seen, but especially with this Lordship where he says, uh, my, you know, uh, the, the, the Lord said to my Lord, all this Lordship language, it's really honing in on, uh, I am who I say I am. And I think you mentioned this, uh, earlier, or even in our conversation before we started here, um, Jesus wants the, the religious leaders to give that allegiance to him. Um, I think you said he's, he's not doing a game of one-upsmanship. Like you ask, you know, nasty questions. All right, here's some nasty ones for you. He's he's calling them to repentance and saying, um, this is one of the purposes for which I came, you know, repent and believe in the good news. And that's, mm -hmm. these religious leaders are not exempt from that. Um, and so he's using the Psalm, he's using the scriptures to cement his identity and then call them to repentance and show uh, here's the proper response to the things I'm doing and to the things I'm saying. And, and you so far have not given that, but I'm going to keep calling you to repentance. So, mm. um, and we're, we're going to see a little bit more of what does it mean that they reject it uh, as we go a little bit further through this text. I think part of the genius of what Jesus does here it, in quoting from this verse, he, he starts at a place where the scribes agree with him you know when when he asks how can how can they say that the christ is david's son that's something they they would have believed that the christ is david's mm -hmm. son and jesus is starting at a place where they would agree with him and then saying okay well if that is the case and and it is true then how does this passage which you know you accept as god's word how does that fit in and and le legitimately giving them something to think about to puzzle over and to as you said, to draw the right conclusion from it, that mm -hmm. yes, the Christ is David's son. David calls him also his Lord. The conclusion you need to be drawing from this is that the Christ is not only David's son, not only true man, but he's also mm -hmm. David's Lord, true God. And I mean, he's you know, he, he uses a very, I, I think, about as clear of an example as he could from a pretty straightforward passage that when you look at, wait a second, 
he's right. There's something there. So, I, and that's part of the genius of what he's, he does here. And as you said, it, it does really open up the Old Testament for us as Christians to read it with Christ mm-hmm. as the center, not only in Psalm 110, but but elsewhere in the Old Testament. So you mentioned that we, we need to pay attention particularly to the, the footstool language. I mean, we've got the Lord saying to my Lord and, and talked about the implications of that. What does it mean that... You know, again, the father says to the son, sit at my right hand, I'll make your enemies your footstool. What does that language mean? So that's that's resurrection language. Uh, and it's really neat that Jesus is making all the connections we talked about. But one that might not be quite as obvious is this is a resurrection text that refers to what he's going to do in, an, in a matter of days. Um, Jesus proves his lordship when God raises him from the dead and when he says sit at my right hand until i make your enemies your footstool god made the enemies of jesus's footstool when he raised them when he raised jesus from the dead that's what this text is talking about and it it really um kind of elicits uh, the concept of vindication we like to say where what, what does it mean to be vindicated um, it, it basically means to be proven right. Okay. So I've got this example. If you, um, filled out a bracket this year, I didn't, I haven't for four or five years. I don't care that much, but <laughs> people love it when they're, uh, vindicated when they make some crazy pick for the NCAA tournament, like St. Peter's, the school was the school this year that just busted everyone's brackets. Um, but if you were one of the, you know, three people who have them getting, to the final eight teams, the elite eight, uh, you're vindicated, right? You're proven right. Like I said, this is going to happen. It happened, right? Or this is an experience growing up, um, usually working not in my favor, uh, but sometimes <laughs> in my favor. If you've got a sibling, uh, and you know, say your your mom is this nice vase on the end table, and you're throwing a ball in the house, and it hits the ball, and uh, falls over um if you try to blame it you know if i try to blame it on my sister and she says nope i didn't do it uh the sister is vindicated or proven right when the mom walks in and says yeah i saw it you know your brother's lying you're you're right that's purely hypothetical right right yeah <laughs> or breaking a car window <laughs> uh wasn't me but but that's that's vindication kind of in a nutshell and Jesus' vindication, I mean, he's been vindicating himself throughout this whole gospel narrative where vindication has come when he forgives sins, uh, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, when he makes people who are crippled walk, when he, he opens the, the ears of the deaf that have been stopped, and all these things he's doing to demonstrate it. Um, and of course, as we've said, for a lot of people, they're just you know, it's witchcraft or he, he's doing it by Satan or, you know, I don't know what's going on, but he, it can't be what he's saying is true. And so Jesus goes on to claim, like, I am the son of God, the way, the truth and the life, all this stuff. And if you want salvation from your sin, if you want to um, be caught up in the salvation promise that God gave all the way back in Genesis, I'm the fulfillment of that. And you owe me your allegiance. Um, and that's where this footstool language comes in ultimately is the, the ultimate show that Jesus is who he says he is. And you do owe him your allegiance is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Um, that's where um, he was exalted on the cross. You know, the, we talk about the cross as 
the throne of Christ, where um, his glory is in humility and suffering. Um, that's where you see Jesus uh, fulfilling that messianic role as, you know, just as the serpent was raised up in the wilderness, so will I be raised up um, and save you from your sins. And then we see him um, taking God's wrath for our sin in our place, just as he was prophesied. You know, we talk a lot about the suffering servant songs in Isaiah during Lent. That's where that suffering comes in when he was forsaken by God. Um, suffered hell, but then God raises him from the dead. Jesus ascends into heaven, and that's why we one of the days of the church here we celebrate is Ascension Day. We celebrate Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father, that position of authority uh, and power where Jesus cares for the creation. Um, and we just see all throughout this the vindication that's coming where you know, when, when David says, until I make your enemies your footstool, how do we know who that's talking about? Jesus is saying, it's me. And when I die, my father's going to raise me in three days to prove what I'm saying is right, to vindicate me. And that's a big comfort because, um, I, I mean, I mean, at any point in history, people have trouble vindicating uh, people in authority, people who make wild claims. Uh, there's no shortage of, of, for lack of a better word, crazy people who come along and say, I'm this or I'm that. You should give me all your money. You should do what I tell you to do. No questions asked with, without any vindication. They say, God told me to do this. Um, and it leads to scandal. It leads to people uh, falling away from the faith, all this terrible stuff. But that's not something that we need to worry about with Christ because only he has risen from the dead. Only he is worthy of our full allegiance and we can say by the confidence of our faith that we really are following the messiah the lord of all things because god has made his enemies sin death hell and satan all put them under jesus feet they have no authority over jesus um we still suffer in this world we suffer the effects of sin and death and, and satan but um our sins are forgiven um, we have been delivered from death by Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, we are no longer condemned to spend eternity in hell, but with Christ. And, and even Satan has been defeated. Our accuser cannot bring any charge against us because the Lord Jesus um, is our advocate before the Father. Uh, and this all just, again, goes to prove Jesus is who he says he is, even, even if people reject that. You know, he's proven it. And that's, that's enough for us by faith, of course. It's striking, and I don't know that I'd ever noticed the particular reference to the resurrection that's there, but you're right. And it's, it's striking to me that this reference to the resurrection to the scribes comes right on the heels of Jesus showing the Sadducees the resurrection of the dead. He, you know, he quoted there from Exodus chapter 3 with Moses at the burning bush and the, the Lord's words to Moses there. Another passage that, again, is helpful to see, hey, the Old Testament really is all about Jesus. Um, but to, mm -hmm. to see how that, that goes together, then the resurrection was the topic of conversation with the Sadducees. There's actually some scribes at the end of that text that say to Jesus, you've spoken well. And he comes right back at him with a text that is meant to show the resurrection yet again. I mean, again, just to see the mm -hmm you know, the, as I said earlier, the genius of our Lord in choosing this particular passage, building on what he's already been teaching and, and, you know, going, going at the scribes in this way, not so much to condemn them, but to, 
again, push them towards seeing who he actually is and to recognize him as Mm -hmm. God who will be shown to be truly God in the resurrection, that ultimate vindication. I mean, it's just, you know, Jesus is is going one after the other here and it, it, it fits. It really fits. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, that's important for us to see. Pastor, we Mm -hmm. have a couple minutes here before the break. As Jesus goes forward, he's also not going to let the scribes off the hook for for their Mm -hmm. own sins. So with just a couple of minutes, identify for us, um, and we'll talk more about this on the other side of the break, but identify for us the the primary sins that Jesus Mm -hmm. tells the people to beware in the scribes. Right. So I think I think the the way to look at this is there's there's really one big underlying sin that gives way or you know to kind of symptoms you might say to some other sins that derive from that. Um, so the first one we we see Jesus saying beware of the scribes and then he you know comments on what they do. They like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues. That's Jesus' reference to boastfulness. Um, their dress was meant to draw attention to themselves, not defer attention to the Lord. Um, they separated themselves from others as though they were superior. Um, and they used it really the big sin here with that boastfulness is a use of their authority, um, or their status, their platform, you might say to, um, get people's attention, not glorify God and really glorify themselves. Kind of, we, we might say making themselves Lord instead of Jesus. Um, and again, it's another common sin for many of us. We use our pl- God-given platforms to uh, mislead people or bring glory to ourselves when we ought to be bringing it to God. So boastfulness is a sin from which they suffer. The second one is greed. Um, when he says, uh, you devour widows' houses, and what exactly did that mean? Uh, the, the commentary, one of the commentaries I referenced, I believe Arthur Just wrote the Concordia Commentary for Luke. Um, and he, he, sees, he describes it as when scribes devour widows' houses, it's basically they were commanding widows to give all they had. Um, or more than they really should have been commanding them to do, making them think something bad's going to happen if you don't, or uh, you won't, you know, you won't be as prosperous. But um, they're lining their pockets with these superfluous uh, contributions that they didn't really need to be commanding, um, and it's just a, a, a greedy way of taking advantage of needy people in the world. And then finally, there's hypocrisy when they go to pray. Um, prayer is good, no question about that, but uh, not when they are, these scribes are taking it up for sinful purposes. Um, you see that the Pharisee and the tax collector, um, back in Luke 18, where Pharisee is saying, thank you, God, that I'm not like this guy. And the tax collector says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. So those are the three sins, boastfulness, greed, and hypocrisy. But the underlying one I'd say is idolatry. Um, their fear, love, and trust is in themselves and not God. And they're basically saying, Again, I am Lord, not Jesus, so everything revolves around me, and that's a danger that we see. Yeah, and let's let's talk more about that idolatry and the way that that comes to us as a warning from Jesus as well mm-hmm. on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Luke 20 and 21 with Pastor Joel Heckman. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, April 5th. We're studying Luke chapter 20, verse 41, through Luke chapter 21, verse 4, with Pastor Joel Heckman. He serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchie, Oklahoma. Pastor Heckman, prior to the break, we were looking at the beware of the scribes that Jesus speaks, and he identified for us the three primary sins that at least make themselves most manifest of boastfulness, greed, and hypocrisy. But then underlying all that you said is idolatry, and that's where we left off. So take us in, what is the idolatry of the scribes, and then how does that serve as a warning to us as well and not just the scribes? Mm -hmm. So if we remember you know, from our catechesis, Luther's explanation to the first commandment, it's such a great way to, if you want to say, am I being idolatrous with something or is my, uh, is my faith in the wrong thing in the wrong place? Luther says, uh, if you want to know what your God is, look at the thing which you fear, love and trust above all else or things maybe, because we have multiple things that, you know, draw us to put our trust in them in place of God. And, and I use that phrase before the, the break, the, the scribes are essentially saying, I am Lord, not you, Jesus. Um, excuse me. And um, their good works and their personal piety really are what you could say are, are taking the place of God. They fear, love, and trust the people who will give them the honor they crave uh, they seek comfort in their you know, lofty prayers rather than the God to whom they are praying, the object of their faith. And that's really where they get things mixed up on a practical level. That's what rejection of Jesus' lordship looks like. And so it's interesting because we see that Jesus, yes, is primarily calling out the scribes, but to whom is he actually speaking here? Look at verse 45, and in the hearing of all the people— he said to his disciples. So Luke makes a point to draw our attention to Jesus is talking to not only his disciples, but also everyone with an earshot, essentially. And he's essentially warning them, don't do what the scribes are doing. Uh, and maybe you're guilty of these things that they're doing yourselves. And that's really the danger going again back to Luke 18. Um, what was the scribes or what was the Pharisee who was praying the hypocrite saying, uh, thank goodness I'm not like that person. And maybe that's one of our initial impressions. We read, oh, they're walking around in long robes. They're saying these prayers just to get attention. They're greedy and devouring the most vulnerable in society. And we think, oh, thank goodness I'm not like a scribe, but that's really to have the same hypocrisy and idolatry as the, as the scribes, because you're saying my comfort, my confidence is in not being like another sinner rather than in Christ who forgives my sins. Um, and you might even be denying some things that you are also guilty of that match up with the scribes' sins. And we had a reading 
when you hear this, I guess it will have been three weekends ago in First Corinthians 10, 1 through 13, where um, Paul is talking about temptations. And he says in chapter 10, verse 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And he, he talks about all these stories of look at what happened to Israel in the wilderness when they rejected God and grumbled God he, against God. Here are the consequences. These were written down for our instruction is what he says. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus is doing here. These things are being pointed out not to humiliate the scribes, certainly to bring the law against them and, and um, condemn their sins uh, and draw them to repentance. But it is, it's also meant to teach you. Are you in the position in which the scribes find themselves? Maybe not particularly, but do you boast about your own works? Do you do, you do things for God just as a show? Um, are you trusting in something more than the Lord, do your actions reflect that? So um, perhaps two points here to take away with this comparison with the scribes. First, repent, <laughs> uh, just as Christ says. This is, this is again, the main theme of our Lenten season is repentance, but also forgiveness. Uh, we have the Spirit of God who, as we, we, def- we define repentance as contrition and faith, uh, sorrow over our sins, So we have the Holy Spirit who leads us to sorrow with the law of God for our sins. And then he gives us faith to believe that we are forgiven by Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, That famous phrase we have for you, the Holy Spirit gives us trust that that phrase, I forgive you your sins is for us. Um, And so it's not just a man, look at how look look at how the scribes are sinning. Uh, Certainly pay attention to that, but also, you know, take take the. Uh, what is it, the speck out of your own eye, you before you get the log out of your brothers. That's really what Jesus is saying here. So there is comfort, um, but don't 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 think that you're better than someone. Say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, just like that tax collector did. And God has mercy on you. Thanks be to God. I, I think in the context uh, of the idolatry of the scribes, part of the warning <laughs> Is, is I think you're right to identify idolatry, but part of the warning is the rejection that the scribes are exhibiting of Jesus himself. That, that these, mm-hmm. these sins that, you know, you identify the boastfulness, the greed, the hypocrisy, and rightly so, but the real danger of, of those sins is the way it leads them into idolatry. And if, if I listen to the scribes' teaching, or if I fall into their sins, the danger is that I will reject mm-hmm. Jesus in the same way that they are. You know, it, it is it is their boastfulness, their greed, their hypocrisy that leads into this idolatry. That's the reason they're rejecting Jesus. And so within mm-hmm. within that, you know, Holy Week context of Jesus, his authority, his lordship, that's that's I think part of his goal is so that so that his disciples and the crowd hearing recognize that the real danger of the scribes is that they're not accepting him as Lord. And, and mm-hmm. if they were to follow the scribes, if the crowds and the disciples were to follow the scribes, they would fall into that same rejection of Jesus. And, and that's the real mm-hmm. danger. I mean, you know, the, the things that I identify, certainly they're, they're sins, we should avoid them. But the ultimate danger is the rejection of Jesus as Lord. You know, I mean, he, he mm-hmm. keeps bringing it back to that, I think. Now, he's going yeah. to give a, a positive example, as you said. He, he sees something happening there at the temple, and, and he sees this widow putting some money into the box. So give us the—this is, I think, a relatively familiar story. 
tell us mm-hmm. what's going on and then help us to understand why Jesus praises this poor widow as he calls her. Right. And this is where context again comes in quite handy when you're trying to understand the full force of the text and look at what comes right before it. Um, Jesus is rebuking someone for greed and he talks about greed against widows and who does he point out right afterward a widow uh, who demonstrates the opposite of greed so so 21 verse 1 through 4 we all often call it the story of the widow's might so she you know, again she goes into the temple there's a temple treasury and uh, there were boxes set up around the temple with funnels where you could drop in your your tithe your offering so this woman comes in and she gives her tithe and, and just a couple details to help us understand the gravity of what's going on here. Uh, look at what Paul, or excuse me, Luke points out um, with these details. Uh, first of all, what did she give? Um, two copper coins is what it says in the Greek. You use the word two lepta, uh, which would be, um, it was the coin that, that had the smallest currency. It was the smallest possible currency. Uh, I don't know what we would have, like a hay penny now or something that would represent that. Uh, don't ask me. <laughs> but this was the, the, the smallest possible currency um, worth roughly a day's wage. One 128th of a denarius is what my research told me. Um, so obviously there's, there's a reason Luke so, is pointing out the just, value here. Just quickly, the denarius is the day's wage. And the lepta right. is the mm-hmm. 100, oh, right, right, right. one hundred yeah. one 128th of that. So this right. is a yeah. so very really tiny. Small. Yeah. Yeah. Like I don't even know a dollar cent amount to point right. out that you couldn't buy a whole lot with it, to be honest. Uh, so then he, he says, okay, she gave two copper coins. Then he, he didn't just say it was a woman. He said it was a widow uh, who would have been on the lowest basically the lowest rung of society very disenfranchised person little to no rights little to no protection very vulnerable and poor and which is one of the reasons jesus is very stern in his rebuke of devouring widows because they're already vulnerable and um you're furthering their their difficult situation with your um, taking advantage of them so it's a widow Uh, who has very little money to begin with and very little off of which to live. Um, But then Jesus, this last detail, I think is quite telling. And that's one of the really big things that we want to focus on here. He says, she gave more than all. And you say, well, no, she didn't. These, you know, she gave two 128ths of a denarius. Don't ask me to reduce that to a proper fraction. (laughs) And he just math in seminary, <laughs> but but he's saying uh, in re- relative to her total financial assets, and in comparison with the portions the rich gave in relation to their wealth. Okay, sure, they gave you know the amount, like the the dollar amount, whatever you want to say, was more technically, but in comparison with you know what these uh, religious people have with what the widow has, she gave everything. Um, and Jesus is contrasting the greed of the Pharisees with the generosity of the widow here. Um, yes, the Pharisees gave, which it's always a good thing uh, when you when you give tithe, when you give back to the Lord what he has given to you. Uh, but they gave when it was easy. Um, it was out of superfluous success, I think is what one of the commentaries said it. Uh, they could afford it. They say, we're comfortable. Okay, now we'll skim some off the top and give it 
to God. Um, maybe they were giving it for show. Maybe they were genuinely saying this is for the Lord and we want to have this, but they weren't giving out of the same trust that this widow was. She gave when it hurt, I like to say. She gave literally every everything she had. And um, another commentator said something that stuck out to me. God measures the gifts of his people, not on the basis of their size, but on the basis of how much remains, which prompts the question, uh, and I guess this will come up maybe a little bit in our you know, the last point that we're going to discuss here, but how much, how much do you give? How much do you tithe? Um, and if you were to take this text and, and maybe take it further than you ought to, you, you might tell people everything, you know, widow gave everything you ought to give everything. Um, I would, I would caution against that interpretation. Uh, two points. First, I think the, the main point is we are to give out of trust to the Lord, uh, give in such a way that elicits trust in God. Um, the widow gives out of her lack and trusts in God to provide. Uh, so, so give in a way that elicits faith and trust in the Lord to provide. And you kind of know what that amount is. I think it's, it's obviously different with every family, with every income. Um, and that's a discussion that spouses have with one another that you, you know, you have with other people. Um, so, so there's that point, but I think also we need to bring in the, the, the teaching of vocation here where, uh, if, you know, you might ask if I give everything, isn't that irresponsible? Um, and in a way, yes, uh, because God is, God is not saying through this passage, you pointed this out, uh, in our conversation earlier, uh, this does not mean give everything, all the money you have to the church. That's not the point of this. Um, the point is give in a way that elicits trust in God and given in, in such a way that's still responsible with the vocations you have as spouse, parent, um, you know, giving to other people that are in need who are not necessarily associated with the church, things like that. Uh, Paul even says, I, uh, let's see, it's second Corinthians nine, that famous passage where he says, um, Second uh, Corinthians nine seven. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. So notice, there's no percentage or, or, or amount necessarily. Says give cheerfully, um, not out of compulsion. Give in such a way that again points you to the Lord as the one who gives you everything in the first place but also the one who promises to provide even when you, you give your first and your best to him, even going all the way back to Cain and Abel, Abel gave, you know, the, the best of what he had, the first, um, and Cain did not. And then God was pleased with, with Abel and not Cain. Um, and, and truly I, I think, um, that's one of the big points here is give out of faith, give out of trust, give in relation to the vocations in which God has placed you and um, look at the widow as a positive example of trust in God, which we'll expand on in just a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think the matter of vocation is important because, or maybe another way of, of saying that same thing that goes along with vocation are the, the three estates that, that we all live in three estates in the church, in the the family or the home, and in the state. And and the widow here is giving in the realm of her life in the church, but she also has, you know, life in, in the state and life in the home. And so, I mean, when we think about that, we we give everything 
in those three estates. And, and that's, mm-hmm. I think, when it comes to vocation, should I give everything that I have? Well, yes, but does that mean I give everything I have in the church? Well, not necessarily, because I do need to also give to the family mm-hmm. God has entrusted, and I need to be able to give within my, you know, in the public life, the the state sounds very official, but it, within public mm-hmm. life, you know, in, in my, mm-hmm. in my quote, job and, and those things, I need to be able to give. And I, I was reminded, again, as we were talking about this ahead of time, of what Jesus has just gotten done saying when asked that question about taxes, he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Well, what what is it that mm-hmm. belongs to God? That ultimately is everything. And so in our mm-hmm. lives, in the vocations God has given us, in those three estates, we are to give everything in a, in a manner that shows our trust in the Lord, but that doesn't equate with give all your money to the church. Right? And, mm-hmm. and I think that's the, the danger that you're pointing out. Now, having said that, you should think about what you give to your church. If, if you value mm-hmm. the proclamation of the gospel in the place where you live and you want that to continue, you should give toward that. And, and you should take that consideration seriously and, and not use what we're saying as an excuse. Well, you know, we don't need to, to give. Well, no, we're not saying that either. Make sure you think about that, but think about all those places God has placed you and how you can serve him, show the trust that you have in him in, in all those different ways. And I think that's, you know, we want to see this text holistically in that sense and not mm-hmm. narrowed down to just that one particular aspect of, of our giving, but really a, a full way of seeing it, which I think, as you said, fits very well in the context, given the contrast between the scribes on the one hand and then the widow on the other. And that I think is, is kind of where you want us to, to see this is, is this contrast. Mm-hmm. How, how is it? I mean, how do we see this? We've talked about Lordship, the authority of Jesus, how does the widow serve as the positive example, especially in in view of the negative example of the scribes? Yeah, that's what I that's what I see as the enormous payoff here, so to speak, is in these two passages, twenty verses um, forty five through forty seven, and then twenty one verses one through four. Really seeing ultimately the difference between what it means to live as though Jesus is not Lord and what it means to live as though Jesus is Lord. And the widow is an example of someone who lives as though she believes that Jesus is Lord, um, that I can live by the promises of God even when it hurts, when it's difficult, and trust in his provision. Uh, and, and so we kind of ask the question, or I, I, I kind of asked this question as I was reading through this text, what do you do to demonstrate that you trust someone? Um, and the answer is you live as though you believe what they say is true. You live as though you believe they're going to do what they tell you they're going to do. Uh, and I think of this example often, um, you know, say you're, you're, you're a kid who's been dropped off at school for the day and your parents tell you when that bell rings, the final bell rings and school's out, you go wait with your friends on the curbside, uh, and, and this bench sit wherever, and at such and such a time, we will come by to pick you up. So the bell rings, school ends. What do you do to demonstrate you trust your parents? You go out, you sit where they asked you to sit, you take them at your word, and at the exact time they say they'll arrive, they arrive. So you you live as though they're going to do what they say they do. Same thing I thought of, you know, when you get onto an airline, airline <laughs> or an airplane, 
how do you show you trust the pilot to do what they say they're going to do, fly you safely and land you safely? You walk onto that plane um, in the first place. You say, I believe that you are a trustworthy airline pilot, so I'm going to get on this plane. Um, so how do you demonstrate you believe Jesus is Lord? You do what the widow does. You live as though you believe Jesus is going to do what he tells you to do. That's really that's really the heart of the widow's gift. Um, she believes that even though she's getting all the all of the money on which she has to live, the Lord will provide for her. It's not putting God to the test. It's saying, this is what I have been called to give, so I'm going to give it and trust that the Lord will provide. Um, and this this is, again, a great little tidbit from a commentator. Um, <clears throat> the widows having given more to God than the rich would have been interpreted as a positive action by Luke's readers. His readers would have understood the widow as an example of one who was rich toward God, who was not anxious about this life, who sought first God's kingdom. And she, like Jesus, other followers, was willing to sell everything and leave everything in her love for God. I think that sums it up really well. And so we'd say, again, she's living as though Jesus is Lord. How does that translate into 2022? Um, you ask, where is your allegiance? What do your actions demonstrate that you trust that God is going to keep his promises, even when one of those actions that the word of God calls you to is very difficult? Um, you know, it, if God's word calls you to avoid a sinful relationship that you really want to be in, is that something that you trust? Um, if God's word tells you to, um, you know, make church a priority on Sundays instead of all the hundred other things clamoring for your attention, you know, that that might tell you you're not going to be as productive if you go to church or you might not get the spot on the team if you do that. Do you trust that that's true, that you'll still have everything you need if you sacrifice that time to receive God's gifts and worship. Um, you know, even, even money, you know, giving, whatever you give, do you trust that, you know, you could be using this for dozens of other things, but if you give that to the Lord and support his church, are you confident that not only is that going to be used for God's purposes, but also that God will provide for you? So where are the promises that say, yes, this is all true. I, I, I just listed a few here that I, I would, you know, I don't know how much time we have left. Maybe this would be a good place to close. Um, here's some promises just to leave with, with the people. Uh, Psalm 34, verse 10. This is a great one. Those who fear the Lord lack no good thing. Uh, Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the reign of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So putting God first, the Lord provides us what we need. He kind of, he, he really sorts that out, so to speak, where you know, give him um, your best time, your best energy, make him the most important thing in your life and, and things will be fine. Um, it won't be as easy. You probably, the, the world's idol is happiness. You're not going to be as happy, obviously, but that's not the point of life. The point of life is faithfulness and God does give joy and blessings, even in difficulty. Um, and then even, even Romans eight thirty nine. this is one of my favorites, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So even living, you know, when you have the threat of, um, you know, uh, marginalization, persecution, whatever it might be for confessing your faith, mockery, 
That's something we fear, isn't it? Uh, that can't separate us from the love of God in Christ. Um, and really, it, it just, again, to, to really hammer home this point, to live as though Jesus is Lord is to do it, things and say things, trusting that Jesus will take care of you, just like the widow did. Um, it's a very difficult way to live, but our comfort is Jesus is risen from the dead and he is Lord and he will preserve us in ways the world can't. Um, and that, that is a, a fantastic comfort. Um, and, and perhaps the last promise to leave with our people um, from Psalm 25, verse 30. This is one of my favorite Psalms in the whole Psalter. Um, it says, indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. But, and I think that really mimics, if you could sum up these two sections, especially those last ones, the scribes and the widow, it's almost like Jesus is you know, describing in detail what this verse says in one line, the widow was waiting for the Lord and she would not be put to shame. The wantonly treacherous scribes will be ashamed. You know, Jesus talks about the greater condemnation um, and he's even condemning their sins now, but the widow waits and she's not put to shame. And that's exactly the promise we take away from this. Jesus waited to be raised from the dead and he was raised from the dead. He was not put to shame either. And that's the heart of our trust is that resurrection, that footstool again language um, that Jesus has there. What a, what a comfort that is. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the comfort to hear that the Lord is going to be raised from the dead in that first passage becomes the comfort for this widow and for all who put their trust in Christ, that no matter what they give now, every time they put their trust in the Lord, they too will be vindicated along with him. That trust will be mm-hmm. proven true and it'll be proven true ultimately on the last day. And and the scribes, their lack of trust will be proven false as it was. But the promise for the widow, for you, for me, for all the faithful, is that we will be vindicated with the Lord. He will prove our trust in him right, and he will raise us from the dead as he's promised. Pastor Joel Heckman is pastor at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchie, Oklahoma, helping us today with Luke chapter 20, verse 41 through chapter 21, verse 4. Pastor Heckman, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks again, Tim. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 20 or 21 or any of the gospel, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.